When I was 18 years old and a freshman in college, I took a civil engineering course for liberal arts majors, along with Ashley and my grandfather. My grandfather was a civil engineer. He had retired and lived near campus, so he audited the class. So for two times a week, I would show up to lecture seated next to my future wife and my grandfather. That probably didn't happen for many other people. But this uh, civil engineering course was focused on skyscrapers and buildings. And as part of the final project, you could choose any structure in the world. And then you had to analyze how it was built and do the math and determine whether or not it was structurally sound. What kind of forces could it withstand? Professor David Billington had taught this class literally for decades. And there is a renowned story about one of his former students. Here's the background. The Citicorp Center at 53rd and Lexington, just 10 blocks south of here, was first constructed in 1977. At the time, it was the seventh largest building in the world. And it is unique not only because of the slanted 45-degree angle roof, but also because of the fact that the bottom nine stories are literally stilts. It is a skyscraper built on stilts suspended over St. Peter's Lutheran Church. Now, if you look at it, it doesn't really look all that sturdy, but it must be, right? Because you wouldn't build it if it weren't. Well, one year after it was constructed, one of Billington's undergraduate students decided to make the focus of her senior thesis this structure. And so she did the kind of work that we were required to do in the course. She analyzed how it was built and did the math to see what kind of forces it could withstand. Now, ordinarily, a skyscraper is strongest in the corners. And when winds hit the building face on, that's what creates the greatest strain. But this is not a typical building. So this student determined that the building was especially susceptible to winds that came not head on, but at a diagonal across the corners. And given the kind of storms that roll through New York, every so many years or so, she determined that every year that the building stood, there was a one in 16 chance that it would completely fall apart. And it turns out she was right. So the architect, the famous architect who designed this building caught wind of her research, no pun intended. Unbeknownst to her, he informed the NYPD who developed a evacuation plan covering a 10 block radius and put 2,500 Red Cross volunteers on alert. And without ever informing the building occupants, the contractors quietly began trying to strengthen the foundation as Hurricane Ella was barreling up the East Coast. Now, fortunately for them, that hurricane never made landfall, and the newspapers were all on strike at the time. So nobody reported the story until 20 years later it appeared in the New Yorker. Now sadly, neither I nor Ashley discovered a hidden design flaw and saved the skyscraper from collapse. But if ever there was a story that underscored the importance of having a solid foundation, it is this one. And that is the central theme that Paul addresses in this section of the letter that we're exploring today, 1 Corinthians. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, let me provide you with a little bit of the backstory. The Apostle Paul traveled to the Greek city of Corinth around the year 50 AD, 
and he shared the gospel of Jesus. And many people received this message, they became Christians, and as a result, Paul founded the church in Corinth. He ended up staying there for 18 months, longer than he had previously stayed in any other city. But after that year and a half period, he, he sailed across the Aegean Sea to the city of Ephesus. But that's when everything fell apart. Because while Paul is in Ephesus, he receives a report that everything that he had worked so hard to build in Corinth was now in danger of falling apart. The church had divided into factions. They had formed cliques. They were abusing their spiritual gifts and their freedom in Christ to do whatever they wanted. And as a result, they were living their lives not only no differently than their neighbors, but in many ways, they were living quite worse lives than their neighbors. Now, there's many churches today that I would say are struggling to survive in many of the same ways that the church in Corinth was way back then. And 15 years ago, Central was one such church. And so if a, if a church is in danger of collapsing because of leadership issues or because of design flaws, then what do you have to do? You have to strengthen the foundation. And that is precisely what Paul seeks to do when he dashes off a letter from Ephesus back to Corinth. And through this letter, which we now know is 1 Corinthians, he shows us what the church can and should be. He shows us the kind of church that the world needs today. And so specifically in the passage that is before us this morning, we will see that Paul uses two different metaphors to describe the church, as well as what it means for us to engage in Christian ministry. Both of these metaphors are cited in verse 9. He says, you are God's field and you are God's building. So I'd like us to take a closer look at this passage, focusing on those two metaphors and consider what we can learn about who we are, what we're supposed to do, and how we're supposed to do it. So if you'd like, you can open up a Bible or follow along in the program. I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 15. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, and the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. All Christians 
are called to ministry. It's not as if the work of the church is reserved for professional Christians like myself. All Christians are indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit. All Christians receive unique gifts in order to serve. All Christians are called to help build up the body, to edify the church and to participate in God's mission in the world. So there's no place for a consumer mentality. We're not supposed to just consume religious goods and services. No, we're all called to be producers. We're called to produce God's love and truth and grace in the lives of others. And so if that's true, then the question is, well, then who are we? Who are we, all of us, as God's workers? Well, this is how Paul answers the question. As a refresher, you may remember that after Paul left Corinth for Ephesus, he met a man named Apollos, who had originally come from Alexandria in Egypt. And Apollos was not only brilliant and well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, but he was an incredibly gifted communicator. And so after meeting Paul in Ephesus, Apollos himself makes a trip to Corinth where he seeks to encourage the church there. And Acts chapter 18, verse 27, describes the effect that he had. It reads, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. And I love this as a side note. He greatly helped those through, who through grace had believed. They believed through grace, which shows that even faith, even our faith is a gift. Well, Paul uh, sent Apollos there to Corinth, and Apollos didn't stay there long, but given his gifts and his charismatic personality, many people attached themselves to him. And he, uh, he left Corinth, and there were still people in Corinth who were loyal to him, even though by the time Paul writes this letter, he's back in Ephesus. Now, what does this tell us? Well, we tend to think that celebrity culture is something of a modern phenomenon, but what we find in the Corinthian correspondence is that this was an issue that plagued the early church from the very start. And so Paul wants to address this issue. People were creating cults of personality around certain leaders by putting them up on pedestals. And so Paul is being very, very delicate here as I mentioned last week, he's, he's working very hard to avoid naming names. Now, there are people in Corinth who are loyal to Paul and who are loyal to Apollos, but that's not the real issue. Apollos was Paul's trusted colleague. No, the real issue is with the people that Paul doesn't mention because there were other teachers, other leaders who had followed Paul and Apollos whose names were too sensitive to mention. So he's being very delicate, but in verse 5, he seeks to diffuse this whole situation engaged in involving this personality contest. And so then he writes at the beginning by saying, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Now that's a striking way of putting it, isn't it? He deliberately chooses to say what, not who. What is Apollos? What is Paul, not who? He's being quite emphatic. You know what this is like? This is a little bit like a disruptive child being dragged into the principal's office. And then the principal, instead of saying, well, who, who is this? Says, well, what do we have here? <laughs> what is this? What are we dealing with? And in answer to his own question, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Paul says, we are only servants. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned 
to each. And the word that he uses for servants in Greek is literally the word waiters. People who served at tables. So Paul is saying, who are we? Paul, Apollos, we're only servants. We bring you your food. We really are just the help. And so then in verse 9, Paul introduces the first of two images for the church. He says, you are God's field. Now this one image doesn't tell us everything that we might want to know about Christian leadership or ministry. So what is Paul driving at? Well, there are three essential activities that must take place in order for a field to produce a healthy crop. You've got to plant seeds, you've got to water those seeds, and then you have to cause those seeds to sprout. So then Paul applies this metaphor to the situation in Corinth in verses 6 and 7. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. So Paul was the first to tell the Corinthians about Jesus. Then Apollos followed him and encouraged this fledgling church. Both of them had an important role to play. We don't have to be dismissive of the role they played. And their roles were interdependent. Do you see that? There's no point in planting seeds if you're not going to water them. And on the other hand, there's no point in watering the ground if you haven't previously planted seeds. So you need both. And that's why Paul says in verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. So even though they were doing different jobs at different stages in Corinth's development, they were nevertheless united in the same task. They were committed to the same goal to help this group of Christians grow up into maturity and to become everything that God wanted them to be. And therefore, as God's fellow workers, united in the same task, each should receive his wages according to his labor. In other words, they should be recognized for their efforts, but not in the eyes of other human beings. That's not Paul's point. No, Paul is saying we should be recognized in the eyes of God. He's the one who gives us our due. He is the one whose opinion matters most. So at the end of the day, Paul says in verse 5 that we are servants, Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. The Corinthians became Christians through Paul and Apollos. That's a big deal. That's nothing to snuff at, nothing to scoff at. Their work was not irrelevant. But what Paul wants us to see is as hard as they might have worked and as prayerfully as they might have given themselves to the effort, God is the only one who can give the growth. Therefore, those who plant and those who water are not anything in the eyes of God. We really are just the help. And that, of course, is true of all of us. Everything that we apply ourselves to, if God is not in it, in the end, will be useless. All of our work will not make a lick of difference unless God is the one who gives the growth. And only he can do that. He's the one who makes things grow. And Jesus said the exact same thing in Luke 17, 10. He said, you, when when you have done everything that has been demanded of you, can only say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We've only done what was our duty. And so if at time you do feel perhaps like you've been slighted before some human audience or unrecognized or perhaps you feel underappreciated, maybe you need to stop and ask yourself, well, why is this so important to me? 
Why is it so important for me to be recognized before this human audience? What audience am I trying to impress? Because God is the one who sees, God knows, and his opinion is the one that matters most. So the real question is not who are we, but what? We're only servants. We're only doing the job that has been assigned to us. We are just the help. But if that's who we are, then Paul addresses this second question, which is, well, what are we supposed to do? And in answer to that question, he shifts from an agricultural image to an architectural one. He shifts from thinking about the church as God's field to thinking about it as God's building. We're all called to use whatever gifts we have to help build up the church, to help edify one another so that we might grow in our faith. And whether we're cultivating a field or constructing a building, Paul emphasizes the fact that this is a team effort. No one person can take any credit for it. Just as one plants and another waters, so he says one lays a foundation and another builds upon it. And verse 10, he says specifically about himself, according to the grace given to me, notice the word grace there again, all of this is a gift. According to God's gift given to me, I laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and someone else is building upon it. Now here, notice that Paul doesn't mention Apollos because Apollos wasn't the only person that followed Paul. No, there were other teachers that followed Paul in Corinth. Some good, some bad, which just goes to show that not all contractors are alike. And if you've ever tried to do work in New York City, you know that that's true. So then Paul says in verse 10, for that reason, because there's some good teachers and some bad that followed him, let each one take care how he builds on the foundation that he has already laid. And how does he want us to be careful? Well, he focuses in on first the foundation and then the superstructure. First, he zeroes in on the foundation. Now, like Citicorp Center, you got to make sure that your foundation is secure or else the whole structure is in danger of collapse. So you better make sure the foundation is right. Now, we could stop and think about this for a moment at the personal level. You see, at the personal level, every single one of us must base our life on something. Everybody has to live for something. Everybody looks to something to give their life meaning and value and purpose. That's how you know who you are. That's know how you know that your life counts for something. So what is it that you're building your life on? It could be romantic love or family or career success or critical acclaim, health and wellness, perhaps living a life of comfort, ease, or pleasure. But what is it that you're building your life on? What is the foundation of your life? Because unless you're careful, you could find that there is a hidden design flaw in the structure of your life. And if that's the case, then when a storm hits, and if those winds come at you diagonally, it might just knock you out. And some of you have probably experienced that over the last 18, 19 months. And so the question that you need to consider this morning is, is your life structurally sound? Because what Paul wants us to understand is that the only foundation upon which we can build a life is Jesus Christ. He's the only one strong enough to withstand the storms that will hit us. He's the only one that can enable us to stand up even in the face of hurricane force winds. 
that come at us sideways when we least expected them. So we could think about this at the personal level, but that's actually not Paul's focus. Paul's focused on the corporate level. He wants us to think about, well, what is the foundation of the church itself, the body of believers? He writes in verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, we all know that there are some churches today that have become unrecognizable as Christian organizations because their foundation has so substantially shifted from what it once was. And any Christian ministry, any Christian church that's worth its salt will at least say that it's centered on Christ. But here's the problem. The problem is that we can assume that Jesus is the foundation of the church in theory, but then we might overemphasize some other aspect of the Christian life in practice. And when we do that, that's when the cracks start to show in our foundation. When we assume that the gospel is the foundation of the church in theory, but emphasize something else in practice, that's when the foundation very subtly begins to shift. So let me give you a couple examples of that. As Christians, we all want people to be ethical. We want them to pursue God's call for justice in this world. We want people to engage the broader society and help make a positive difference in our time. But here's the issue. If you overemphasize moral behavior to the detriment of the gospel, well, then you slide into legalism. If you overemphasize pursuing God's call to justice, you slide into political activism. Or if you overemphasize cultural engagement, you slide into cultural triumphalism. You find yourself caught up in a never-ending culture war. And this is very, very subtle. We're talking about really subtle shifts. But the point is that you can lose the gospel by emphasizing good things that turn out to be the wrong things because they're not the central things. See, you can lose the gospel by emphasizing the wrong things. And that is what Paul is warning us against. We have to make sure that the foundation of the church at all times is Jesus, which means that we have to come back to it over and over and over again. The crucified and risen Jesus is the center of all that we do and think and say. It is the foundation, not only of our personal, but also of our corporate lives. Because anything else will cause us to slide. Jesus is the vital center out of which every other aspect of the Christian life flows. So if Paul, first of all, tells us to focus on the foundation, but then he tells us we also need to be careful about how we're building the superstructure on top of that foundation. And so he extends the metaphor, and he talks about the materials that we might use to build the superstructure, and the materials represent the teaching, the teaching of the church, or the teaching that we pass on to one another about how to live out the Christian life. And in verse 12, he tells us that in the end, there's only two possibilities when it comes to the materials that we might use. Either your teaching will prove to be valuable and durable, like gold, silver, or precious stones. He probably has marble in mind. Or your teaching will prove to be cheap and perishable, like wood, hay, or straw. So Paul takes what we teach one another very seriously the materials that represent true Christian teaching must be able to withstand not only the test of time, but also the day. Do you see that word? 
He's talking about the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns and judges the living and the dead. So listen again to what he says here in verses 13 through 15. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So do you hear that? Every single one of us at the end of time will stand before God and we must give an account for our lives. And Paul uses this imagery of fire to suggest that God will test the quality and the purity, not only of our hearts, but also of our lives, the things that we've done, the things that we've said, the things that we've taught. Now, a Christian is someone who says, God accepts me now and forever, not because of who I am or what I've done, not because of what I believe or what I've taught to other people, but solely because of who Jesus is and what he has done for me. That's the gospel. That's what makes you a Christian. A Christian is someone who undergoes a transfer of trust. A Christian is someone who says, I no longer trust in myself, who I am or what I've done for my relationship with God, but rather I transfer my trust to Jesus. And God accepts me, not because of who I am or what I've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he has done for me. And that is the gospel. And if you put your trust in Jesus, then what does that mean? It means that when you stand before God on the last day, you already know what the verdict will be. The verdict is already in. When you stand before him, you will hear God say, not guilty, innocent, righteous. He will declare you not guilty, and therefore you can have absolute assurance now that he will accept you despite all your faults and failures. But just because the verdict has already come in doesn't mean that you can skip the trial. We will stand before him nevertheless on that last day and he will test our works. He will test the things that we have done and said as if through fire. And so here's the important thing. At this point, In this part of the passage, Paul's not talking about people who aren't Christians. He's not talking about false teachers or false teaching. No, he's talking about Christians, the things that Christians have said, the things that we have passed around to one another. And he says that if your teaching is made of the good stuff, it'll survive the test. It'll endure the trial. It'll come through the fire. And you will receive a reward. Now, he's not talking about some earthly reward, power, money, fame, status, recognition. No, he's talking about a heavenly reward a future reward, the best of all kinds, you will hear God say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So if your teaching is the the good stuff, it'll survive the test. But if your teaching is cheap, like wood, hay, or straw, it'll be burned up and you will suffer loss. And notice he says you'll still be saved because you're not saved on the basis of who you are or what you've done. You're saved on the basis of who Jesus is and what he has done for you. You'll be saved, but only as through fire. Or the way that we might put it would be only by the skin of your teeth. But your teaching will be burned up. So you see, this is serious. And now you can see why I am very conscientious 
about what we teach at Central. I care quite a bit, not only about what is said from this pulpit, but also what is said in our children's ministry, in our youth ministry, in our community groups, and in our Bible studies, because the foundation has to be sure, and it's got to be consistent all the way through. So the question is whether or not we are offering teaching that will build up the church rather than prove to be rather flimsy stuff. Because it's not just about me. It's not just about what I do or say. It's about all of us. It's about what we say to one another. So we've considered who we are and what we're supposed to do. The final question we have is, how are we supposed to do it? And you'll be grateful to know that this point is the shortest. It's very brief. But what I'd like to do is draw these metaphors together and then briefly conclude. See, Paul asked this question, who are we? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? And he's deliberately trying to downplay the importance of human leaders because that's not what matters. What counts is God. The one who plants, the one who waters, we're not anything. We're just servants. We're just waiters. We just bring you your food. We're just the help. But then, notice that in verse 10, Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And that word skilled in Greek is literally the word wise. Paul's wise. He's a skilled, wise master builder. In other words, he knows what he's talking about. So Paul may only be a waiter, but you know what he's like? He's like a really good waiter in a fine restaurant who not only brings you your food, but also knows the best dishes for you to order. See, Paul may only be a servant, but he's also a skilled master builder, and that's why we should listen to him. We should listen to him. Paul is not trying to direct everyone's attention to himself. Now, the reason why we should listen to him is quite the opposite. He's constantly trying to fix our attention elsewhere on Jesus. You see, Paul's not interested in winning some kind of popularity contest. In the Christian life, there's only one person who belongs on top of a pedestal. And that person is Jesus. And the pedestal that Jesus climbed on top of was not a marble column. No, Jesus was lifted up on the pedestal of a wooden cross. And the cross shows us what God really thinks about human popularity contests. He sees right through it. And so if you want to be something in the kingdom of God, well, then you have to join Jesus where he is. You have to join Jesus on a cross. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that there are so many churches that are tottering on the brink of collapse today and not long ago Central was one of them and so we pray that you would help us personally and corporately to make sure that our foundation is sound. Help us to recenter our individual and corporate lives on the only foundation that can withstand the storms of life, which is Jesus, crucified and risen for us. And so we pray that you would help us, as we do so, to know that you're calling us to help build up the church, but at the end of the day, we are only servants, unworthy servants who are simply doing the job that has been given to us, which in short is to point people to you. Help us to do that by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.